Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS, your friendly digital transformation agency. We help banks become truly digital. Fintech Insider has been downloaded in 160 countries, regularly hovering near the top of the business category in iTunes. That's down to you. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Bates, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, David Breer. Hello. And Aidan Davies. Hello. And even better, we're joined by some fantastic guests, Charlie Taylor, analytics and growth lead at Curve. Hello. We've got Ed Maslavekas, CEO and co-founder at Bud. Hey there. And Lucas Zerner, founder at Mobility. Hello, everyone. See that tough names? Nailed it. <laughs> Brie, come on. Like, how difficult is this? So today we're here to talk about fintech for the average Joe or Josephine. Do we live in a bubble? Is fintech great for people who work in fintech, but the average man in the street or lady in the street does not care and does not know anything about it? Uh, I guess it'd be great to start off with to understand a bit more about you guys, your businesses, and the kind of thing you offer. So, Charlie, should we start with you? Sure. So, at Curve, we are making an app that is looking to connect together your financial world. We're not looking to be a new bank or a, a new way to save money necessarily any specific job we want to be that hub it connects to the bank accounts that you have the credit accounts that you have uh, if you want to connect to a way to transfer money we'll have connections to those kinds of services as well and we're doing that on top of having the curve card so i pay for example from multiple uh, accounts credit and debit from one curve card all my transactions in one place and then through the app i can connect to other services so it's the hub that connects me to all the great things that are happening in the fintech space and makes my financial life just a bit more connected and a bit simpler. Great. Thanks very much. Ed? So, uh, Bud, what we see ourselves as kind of the leaders of marketplace banking and um, a little bit different to what most people will think is actually where we ourselves moving forward is this middle layer. So actually working uh, in a world which we see is more collaborative, whether it's with fintechs and fintechs or it's with banks and fintechs, or maybe banks and banks, but probably not. Um, but re you know, across regions potentially, um, and we really see ourselves as facilitating that with a whole bunch of set of digital propositions that we have built and are implementing into various institutions. Thanks, Lucas. Brilliant. So we at Mobility, we are the personal financial assistant for the average Joe. Mm -hmm. um, what we do is we connect to the customer's bank accounts. We source the relevant data we need, uh, analyze and find out what's going wrong in the lives of the people. For example, too high utility bills. And then uh, through our Facebook Messenger chatbot, um, we offer our customers yeah, the solution to fix it. We are saying you're overspending on your utility bill. Do you want to do something about it? Uh, the customer says yes. And we do all the paperwork in the background, making sure that his final, uh, finances are always optimized. So out of anyone we could bring in, it sounds like you guys are selling, pitching, aggregating, bringing fintech to the masses. So you're the people to have in the room. So what's your initial thought? You know, is fintech a bubble? Is my mum, is my sister, are my, is my family really going to care about this stuff? Uh, I think 90% of fintech to begin with is a bubble. So all the really early stuff, the early adopters, we definitely saw when we launched a public facing app 
the people that were in the room coming in to speak to us about what they wanted and the next steps were people that worked in the banks, in the innovation department. But, you know, I think more and more so we're seeing it to be sort of adopted by the masses. And, and, and that is whether you start to see, you know, the, you know, it's the typical the cycle of your early adopters, your sort of middle and late. Um, but actually, you know, now that kind of large institutions are, are more and more collaborating, you'll, you'll see the, the laggards, the very end, people starting to actually pick up fintech without realizing. That's where, you know, it becomes super exciting uh, for me anyway. It's, I mean, it's such early days. I mean, if it's a bubble, it's a very small one. There's, there's much more room for this bubble to grow. I, I, I look at other sectors where innovation has come along before and things have gone, you know, blown up and then kind of collapsed a little bit. How have they evolved? Health, for example, health tech. A few years ago, one might have said, how is health tech going to come into my life? Now, half the people you meet might record their steps or record how they're sleeping and things like this. I think money is a bit... Uh, behind in the in the life cycle, but it is uh, it's inevitable that it's going to go in the direction of people having more transparency, uh, more control, and relying on a greater array of different people to help them get certain jobs done around money. And then they'll need, like Spotify has done for music, some way of stitching it together in a way that's just accessible and relatively effortless for everyday life. So there's plenty of room for it to, uh, to for the bubble to emerge. Uh, beyond where it is now but there's no doubt that this is an inevitable change I think. I guess that's one of the things that no one refers to health tech but my sister will talk about her Fitbit um, and I guess with the, the the services that you guys offer and aggregate I guess the key question is what is my sister going to refer to as being the thing that really grabs her and tells her friend? How does fintech penetrate the bubble and actually start making its way into the mass market? Have you any any views as to what are those few products that actually really grab people to start off with? Well, I would first of all take a step back on, on the previous question because so I've got the background in investment banking in um, advising energy companies. And what you saw there was the so-called smart meter, um, which were being installed in all the houses across the UK. A smart meter is an incredible thing which makes sure that you don't need to make, uh, take your meter reading manually. So it's actually a great thing. But you roll it out across the UK and if you look on the internet and find out what's going on, people are absolutely confused about what's going on, people don't understand it, and people as a consequence say, I don't even want to have this in my house. So you see that an entire industry actually is losing out on a big opportunity. And the only thing about communicating this stuff is you see it on the, on the newspapers, there's sometimes a small ad around it. But I think if we want to make fintech successful, we need to communicate much, much better and much, much more about it to the average Joe. So I don't understand why we are still, we are one year away from PST2 basically coming into place properly. Um, and there is nothing in the big newspapers about that, which is dedicated to the average Joe. And everything what we are doing, like basically us here sitting in the room, is targeted at one specific demographic, or which is fintech specialists. I think we've started to see things like PSD2 start to be mentioned in mainstream media, but actually the complexities of it are yeah. of such that it would turn my mom off within about three seconds of seeing that that uh, that headline type thing, you know. So, so I, th- I think we're we're starting to see the 
this is a big deal, but I don't think there is any anything in mainstream media that's actually breaking it down in a way that could be consumed, which I think is kind of really the problem. But I, I think to, to you know to, to sort of echo some of the points that you guys have been making, really, it feels like it becomes mainstream not by explaining it, by but by being the way that it's done. Um, and I think there's some really interesting sort of signs of the these types of changes sort of happening. Where you know I had um, I had a kind of a text message from a friend of mine who works at the Tate Museum. And she texted me and was like, I'm sitting in a bunch of my friends who are all sort of museum geeks and they're all talking about the ethics of Monzo. And I was like, all right, like this is clearly starting to break out from just the, you know, the the old street sort of roundabout mentality of, you know, the 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 bubble of fintech into the mainstream. And and I guess when you start seeing numbers that we're, we're looking at in terms of adoption numbers, then clearly that just can't be all the, uh, you know, the fintech boards getting excited about this stuff. It it must be starting to really sort of appeal to, you know, real people. Yeah, I think I think the biggest sort of challenge, especially when you try to adopt anything is, is, you know, you look at the financial services industry, it's super, super noisy, right? You've got something, I saw a report the other day, it said there was something like 19,000 global fintechs, right? So you add fintech onto finance industry, which is already confusing, but there's there was nothing really in there that, that provides sort of relevance to people to say, actually, here is a cool solution um, tailored perfectly for you. So that's kind of something that we, we've started to sort of think about. And that's really the, the earliest things we built at Bud was thinking about, hey, look at this market. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great? But how does a consumer know what's right for them other than having an advisor or, or doing the thing that some of the people we spoke to that came in to our office or that we now call the lab, um, if they go on a comparison site and then they open another comparison site and another comparison site and all they're looking at is price and, and they don't really know if that product's actually going to be useful for them. So, you know, it comes to this world where there's definitely a shift digitally where we're going away from marketing to um, engines that provide relevance, um, sort of machine learning, leading a lot of that stuff like Netflix and Amazon. Um, and I think that will be a big shift in the next 10 years. Absolutely. Charlie? I think a lot about um, the behavioral change journey that people have to go through. Things have to be relevant right now. And it's not because people aren't able to absorb complicated um, you know, activities. It's just that people are busy. Our minds are occupied with everyday life, and we don't yet have a, 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 a place in our day carved out for fintech. What am I going to do with that today? Uh, and when, well, no one will ever have that place carved out in their life. They do have a place in their life carved out for, can I afford to go on that holiday? How do I save more easily? I really struggle with it. And in the moment where uh, any one of us or anybody else is able, able to provide something that really gets that job done with minimal effort and minimal additional understanding necessary, gets that job done, then you're onto something. When you don't have to explain anything technical, then you're onto something. That's the pivotal moment, I think, at which it goes beyond a roundabout and uh, it spreads uh, without needing to push onto people. I think that makes sense. I think we talk a lot about the move from dumb financial commodity products to intelligent services. And those services have to be aimed at something customers need doing. And the the closer the relevance and the the closer the insight, then I guess the the bigger the move. And it's not fintech. You know, just like PSD2 will never make the mainstream media, just as HTTP never makes the mainstream media. People know Facebook, they know, you know, they use it to serve needs. But who cares what infrastructure it works on and how, how it lives? And I guess that's part of the bubble that we talk about 
the infrastructure as a thing that is never going to make it into the world. But hey, Victor, Victor's just joined us. Victor, CEO and co-founder of Plum. Um, be great to hear to hear just a little bit about Plum before you jump into the conversation. Plum, Plum is basically your automated savings assistant. Uh, we launched in January uh, and effectively we're a Facebook bot that you go to, you connect your current account, we monitor your historic earnings and spendings. And then based on that, we figure out how much you can save and, and actually um, save that for you. So it's very interesting that you just said that, you know, the the value is the value that you try to bring. And that's very much what we're trying to um, to do and kind of hide behind the scenes, the, behind the scenes, the analytics that go uh, we go through to figure out how much you can save and actually bring a result to you that is like you have money put aside that you can use for a holiday or you can use to invest or you can use for, you know, when your car breaks down or whatever you you uh, you might think and and kind of yeah using uh, well fintech or like using this product to basically bring uh, value to people's lives. So that's Plum and how we, I guess, fit into all of this. I guess the the big question becomes with this mainstream of, uh, do they really care? I guess there are a lot of banks who are looking at switching numbers, for instance, and saying, this customers don't care. It's just apathy. These aren't big enough problems in their lives to actually have people go and look for solutions. What do you think? So I, I did a small test. So over the last couple of weeks, we opened several bank accounts with the banks in the UK. Um, so Santander, whatever you've got, the high street banks. And we try to find out if in the communication with the customer throughout the journeys um, to open the bank account, if there's any mention about fintech in general. And there's none. Like across all the big banks, there's no mentioning about fintech. And again, we are one year away from it. So what I'm saying is if we want to attract the mainstream, there must be a role the big established banks need to play to educate their customers because they cover the majority of the clients or of the customers in the banking sector at the moment across the UK. So I think they have should play a stronger role in explaining better or in making sure that people understand better what fintech is. I think, I think it's interesting. I think I still come back to the, like, I still tell my mum I work in IT. Because if I had to explain to her what fintech was, it would be too hard. I think it was the I think it was the TransferWise ad, wasn't it? That, that had uh, what do you think fintech is? And people were talking about like stuff with dolphins and sharks and whatnot. You know, and I, I kind of I, I sort of almost I don't I'm not surprised that nobody's talking about it. I think a lot of people are starting to talk about look at how innovative we are. You know, look at all the things that we're doing. Look at all the shiny stuff in the box. But really, I think what we're seeing is probably them not wanting to kind of shine a light necessarily on what is truly innovative in the industry because actually it kind of makes the stuff in the box not look really that sexy you know so so i think there's a, an interesting sort of dilemma there isn't there that um you know saying we're innovative when we're not really innovative or talking about something that banks probably aren't best place to talk about in a it, it sort of senses quite a difficult dynamic for those guys in terms of you know, talking about being cool when you're not cool. But I guess that's the question. Uh, and part of this is, how do you guys jump from the the end of the Sunday supplement where the cool thing this week is an amazing card or a marketplace thing to actually being part of customers' lives? Is there this apathy? I think, you know, you have to find a use case, right? This is what kind of the first fintechs were all built on is what is the little pain that you solve, right? And that's the thing someone can talk about. You can say, actually, now we can split a payment or now we can um, sort of have all my cards on one card and, you know, take away that pain. Um, that's the things that, that's the way people think. That's the way customers, that's what customers care about. Um, so I think that's what most of fintech is, is, is looking to do. And I think, you know, once you can do it well enough, um, then... 
you know, then you, you get adoption. I mean, for example, you, you equally have the other side where Monzo was like the party card, right? Because you yeah. could budget your weekend on, on a Monzo card. And it was a great, and it's a great use case for that, right? Um, I, I heard that, you know, I never, <laughs> I never did that. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. So it's still that kind of, I suppose, annoying kind of 101 VC thing is what is, what is the pain you're solving? And that, that, that is the thing right now in fintech where banks will start to actually adopt some of the the pain curing uh, we, we shall see and is that the thing though is that is actually fintech move from changing from fixing a customer's pain point to fixing a bank's pain point you know actually banks are very much kind of moved into a either a choir or a uh, you know an element of pulling together and working collaboratively with a number of fintechs because actually it's too hard to do the things that they're doing so you know the pain points move from fix something simple and make it super simple so a customer can understand it to, you know, make an old dog learn doing tricks. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think, so on on that, it's certainly the, the landscape, partnership landscape in the new world is very different from the partnership landscape of the old world where the boundaries around uh, customers were far easier to establish and you could own customers uh, through you know, proprietary access to data. And in the, in the coming world, that won't quite be the case. And so there are some obligations, I think, some kind of um, just economic obligations on people to open up new business models built upon partnerships. And so because of those obligations, there will be pains of not doing so that, that in kind of impel established companies to partner with fintechs and fintechs to partner with fintechs and so on. So to the extent that that's, that's the, new, the new world, then yes, there are pains that fintechs can solve for businesses that haven't historically operated with partnership as core to their business as it, as it, um, as it will be. So it's a really interesting question. You know, is there just this apathy? Now, innovation without demand um, is the death knell of many businesses. So is there just fundamentally a lack of demand? Are we just delusional? I'm, I don't feel awash with reports of customer satisfaction around their financial lives. Um, not pointing any fingers, but people tend not to love banks. People tend not to feel hugely in control of where they're going, where they are, where they're going financially. And, and yet the switching rates are so low. Uh, and so there, there is, I think, some pain that pushes people perhaps to be open to new uh, opportunities, new solutions. But there are huge habits and anxieties. Few habits are more deeply entrenched than sticking with that bank we've had since we were 15. Few anxieties are stronger than, are you the person I can trust with my money? And so I think it's not necessarily the lack of demand or the apathy that is holding back, perhaps switching behavior, but habit and anxiety. And if we're to do something different um, beyond just constructing new solutions, it's thinking about the nature of uh, choice and, and what else we can do beyond constructing better solutions to help people make a better choice. I think the, the thing, though, when you look at, uh, so I think the customer service thing, I think it's really, really interesting. And I, I think we're in for a, like actually just like a fundamental reset of actually what good looks like. Um, because actually when you look at the customer service record, so I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the which one now for 2016, most people are getting like four out of five stars, right? You have to have done some pretty negative stuff. And I'm naming no names from the ones that were getting sort of one stars and two stars in, in various different categories. But, you know, customer scores are pretty high. And I, and I kind of think, that's the thing, you know, we, we see, you know, big banks winning app of the years and that type of stuff. Like, I kind of feel like what good is, it's been so underwhelming. You know, you talk very often, Jason, about we haven't really seen a digital bank, we've seen digitized banking. And I think that's kind of where we've been. 
and it feels like we're at the dawn of the the change really you know it's kind of all of the new players coming through and services like everybody's in the room really kind of starts to sort of raise the bar much more significantly and with all the challenger banks coming through i kind of wonder you know where the the sort of uh you know, Yorkshire banks and Tesco banks and M&S bank actually rank when you start getting, uh, you know, real sort of innovative players coming into the market. But I guess, um, especially with the guys we've got in the room, part of this is, is that trust question? And for instance, with Plum, you know, it's one thing to open a NatWest savings account. It's another thing to start sending my money to you. Do you? Uh, so on one hand, we've got the uh, the need, the desire, the pull. On the other hand, there's this friction around. I have no idea who you are, and I'm not sure I trust you. Am I going to send my hard-earned cash to you? Is that a problem you you see? I think it's actually interesting. I was I was talking over lunch with someone about trust and. I think there's two levels of trust I've realized because I always say that uh, people are very trusting of fintechs. And what I mean by that is that they're willing to try the fintech and let's say send some money, we transfer like a hundred pounds somewhere to test it or use Plum and save five pounds, right? And, and and they're willing like, you know, with Plum and some of the other services here, you know, we ask them for some, some credentials that are quite sensitive, right? And they still trust us with that. So I think people are very trusting to try out the fintechs and that's not the biggest barrier. And then it becomes a matter of if you're an app or a product that takes like is trying to take over someone's whole financial life, I think then there's another level of trust of like, will I put, as you said, all my money in? But I think that's not that big of a problem because like with, with stuff like, like Plum, for instance, you know, you sign up, we suggest save 10 pounds, right? So 10 pounds is not a big deal. And, and, and the amount that we're saving is we're not trying to capture your full uh, savings uh, up front. It's, it's not like we haven't done this by design, but, but I think a lot of fintechs, it, it takes some time to trust them with more significant amounts with of, of your like, you know, wealth. But I think all, we're, we're in a very good position that, that people are very willing to try uh, different things, right? Right? And then that's what's happened with like Monzo and, and Revolut, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to put 100 pounds, see how it goes. Okay, the payments didn't work today because their process had a problem, but, you know, I, I, I'm not like fully reliant on it. So, yeah, so, 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 I, so I think fintechs are in a good position and, and that trust, it's okay for that trust to build a bit over time. You know, someone uses you over two years, they save 2,000 pounds and then they're like, you know what, I'm going to put my 10K savings that I've accumulated because now I trust this guy, I've used him for two years. Is that something you see, Lucas? Yeah, I think so as well. I think when customers join our platform, um, they always get to do something small in the beginning. So this gives them the happiness factor that they see it works in the background, they feel more confident. Um, and then over time, we see when we go into more difficult topics such as uh, switching your utility provider, consumers it takes some time to get them there but then if they see on an ongoing basis what the platform actually provides to them um, they are much much more willing to do something more significant as uh, Victor just said and this is how how we uh, get the customers to to manage the money better. I guess that's something I, I definitely saw at Monzo that actually you know the cost of of buying or acquiring a new current account customer you know could be 150 pounds but the cost of that initial try that here you go here's a card just give it a little go and that suddenly that there's that building relationship and building trust. I guess, Ed, you know, your platform has a variety of products from things that you can try pretty in a small scale up to some fairly major parts of life. Do you see a, a do you see people trying different things first and moving up the scale or, or yeah, how does absolutely. that work? There's there's two two things on that. So first of all, we so part of the marketplace when we launched we first of all launched to, to 100 users to test the little marketplace. And, and part of that was actually, we had a, a partner, Pension B, um, who had a live 
API pension. I think maybe hopefully, I think the first live pension API. And we had various other different products in there. And in, within a month, there was 100 people in that test group and four people had acquired a new pension. When was the last time you acquired a new pension? Like, I was very surprised. And, buy one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give me yeah, some yeah. Um, and this is, I think, you know, we really put that down to ease of use. You could go through, you could click it, a couple, you know, enter your details, we could push some of the details through, and you could do it fairly easily. And it's that ease of use over the, the trust. So equally, when we had a bunch of consumers came, come in, so um, we built our own aggregation suite, the technology thing. We decided not to save, save credentials unlike other people. Um, because it was the trust factor. It was, you know, we don't want to be sort of invalidating terms of use. But we had sessions. They said, and we, we explained this to consumers, and they said, but this is this is why we haven't done it. And they said, yeah, but it's annoying, so please just save them. And we had our head of security go, no, 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 listen, listen, listen. <laughs> you know, you could, you know, potentially invalidate your terms of use. And, you know, if you'd lost your money, then, you know, you, you wouldn't have insurance for it. And they're like, look, look, just save my credentials and make it easy. And I think that ease of use, especially generationally, you know, due to sort of the adoption of certain technologies, what we're used to, um, almost outweighs that trust sometimes. Not to say it shouldn't be there, but it, it was amazing that, that it changes. Just on trust, I, I went to a talk uh, last night uh, from Hello Car, uh, an online marketplace for buying cars. So that's, you know, that's a, a big chunk of money. There's a lot of trust involved. And they went to do some user research in Manchester to see, you know, to see what makes you trust a brand, really. I won't do a Mancunian accent, which the speaker did do really badly. Do it, do it, come on, do it. <laughs> no, 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 I have to go to Manchester again. Um, but basically they were saying, I've seen that brand on the TV. And there, there is that, that mainstream thing of like, they're big enough to be on the TV, they must be trustworthy. And that's, that's an interesting thing. We've had a little bit of discussion about getting out of our fintech bubble and really getting what, what, what is trust. But I guess... You know, go back 50 years, 100 years, banks established trust by having double height, massive marble filled rooms with gild and gold plate, you know, gold leaf around where you could point and go, wow, these guys must have a lot of money. You know, it's, my money's probably safe here. Yet the, the modern indicators of trust that a celebrity has endorsed something Will I am, I'm thinking of, <laughs> that, um, uh, that my friends are using something, that social media seems good, that I'm seeing the Facebook ad every other page. Do you think that they're, um, you know, modern, indi- do you think that there are these modern indicators of trust that uh, fintech brands can lean on? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think it's something new. I think humans have always been susceptible to influence from people in positions of authority. So when someone notable says something is good, uh, people tend to go along with that. It, it's just a fact of the modern world that we're more exposed to what other people say these days uh, through social media in particular. Uh, so I, think, I also think there's, there's, there's trust in technology, which is one thing, which I don't think is necessarily particularly high. There's willingness to try, which is definitely high. And I wouldn't necessarily equate them. People are willing to try things. And particularly they're willing to try things, I think, when the potential downside is low. So I might upload some money to an app. That's great. I, the maximum I stand to lose really is the money I've uploaded. Um, putting my monthly salary into that, putting my pension into that, some people will be willing to try that, but scale that to the whole population. I think the, the willingness to try falls off fairly quickly. And when we think about trust and technology, the, the frequency of huge breaches and issues around data security and data privacy I don't necessarily think that trust in technology is that high. I do think it's something that we have something to work on. 
Uh, and I think strategies around it regarding how regulators can help ensure that the standards of um, standards of businesses uh, that are established ensure that people's financial assets are protected. Uh, that's one part to play. Partnering with established institutions that give you kind of credibility by proxy. Well, if they think they're okay, they're probably okay. That's part of it. Uh, and I think working with those people who are more likely to go with you because you offer them something that's 10 times better than what they have yet uh, existing. And then going beyond those to adjacent kind of market segments. I think those are the elements of building a trusted institution. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to add something just because you asked that. And I've been thinking about trust and in this new world. And, and I really do think that um, it, like this thing of your friend using the product is is really increasing. And, and, and it is the main way that like it, it just like it, it kills that element of trust. Of like Even the TV thing is good, but I, th- I think what you see with a lot of like consumer facing products is that they spread quite quickly. And, and you do see this thing of your friend, like I think the most powerful thing and, and somehow it's become more powerful this day because I don't know, maybe communication is happening at a much higher frequency, both on, you know, online, people are meeting, what's up, Facebook. But, but, but I think that's what enables a lot of like fintechs that are doing, you know, radical stuff as well. Like this, this element of virality, which is breaking down the trust. Like, and I had this experience. I had a friend of mine. And I want him to get on our, the beta of our product. And he's like, there's no way I'm giving you access to my login credentials. And then, and then I'm like, okay, fine, whatever, hell you my friend. But then, <laughs> but he's like, no, I'm not going to let you like peer into my, uh, you know, my, my personal life. And, and then we were sitting at dinner and some random person comes and I'm like, what do you do? I'm like, Plum. And oh, I started using Plum to save. And then, and then the next day he signed up, right? Um, so, so that was really powerful for me to see that even like, you know, as soon as he knew that someone random in a way was using Plum, he's like, okay, this has to be like legit. I, I think, um, I, I think we're, unfortunately, I think, and, and I'm going to do myself absolutely no favors here, but the, the general public had pretty much idiots, right? I think this is an unfortunate turn. <laughs> I think a lot of the political yes, stuff that are, has David, come forward are, yeah. of, has probably ratified a lot of this, the rant that I'm about to go in terms of where we're going. But I think if you see something enough and you feel that that is validation of trust, which most people do, and there's lots of industries where this has been proven. You know, I, I kind of come from an insurance background and, you know, who would have thought like eight years ago that we would have been predominantly choosing what uh, insurance capability we would be purchasing to protect our families or our house or our valuable things based on which fucking cuddly toy you're going to be getting. You know, like, actually, and that's how most people are making decisions. It's like, do I have that meerkat? No, I don't. Therefore, let's get my car insurance from there. Seems mental, doesn't it? But, the you know, the difference that sort of happened there is it wasn't a technological adoption thing because when aggregators came around, the penetration was like woefully low. It was only at the point where they actually started really sort of spending above the line. Did they really sort of become a, uh, a financial services company in the psyche of the, the UK public? And I, I think this is the thing it comes back to is, is you know, frequency of seeing it. And, you know, I think that anybody with a card has like an interesting advantage because you know seeing your friends do it and that validation of doing it and the the kind of insider feel of having something your friends don't i think that's a really interesting adoption technique to to sort of move things forward especially if you make that card hot coral hashtag just saying the financial times guides you through complex issues in divisive times don't settle for black and white when you need the full perspective Turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. 
Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. But I guess that also opens a really interesting question about marketing, about advertising, about the traditional ways of doing it. Because it's definitely something that I've seen that especially in engineering-led startups, there's this feeling of if the product is 10x, it will work, it will just spread. And so the whole piece around a meerkat selling aggregator platform, you know, and arguably winning that war on on what was essentially a piece of marketing fluff, I think is not something you often see around the fintech world, apart from maybe transfer wise, maybe a couple of players. What do you think about marketing, about voice, about brand? Is it something you guys think about? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, should I get off the fence on that one? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the notion of um, if, uh, if the product is good enough, it'll sell itself. I think it's, it's, it's quite seductive. It's quite e- an easy trap to fall into when you're stuck inside the same four walls every day looking at the product roadmap and um, being persuaded rightly um, that it's going to be a great product. Uh, but again, the fact of the matter is that people have, they have their lives and their minds occupied with uh, what they're doing at work that day, what they're going to do that evening. Uh, the holiday that they need to get ready for because they need to buy some stuff. And you need to insert yourself into their life in a language that they're familiar with, but sufficiently different such that there's a pull of there's something new that you want to introduce. And there's no way that your product can just, for most products, can just sit on the shelf and do it there by itself. Uh, you need to position yourselves in their mental model of the world. Uh, we're finding, I, I suspect we may all find some challenge here because for many people, their mental model of the world with regards to money is, I've got a bank and a pension. Well, none of us uh, are banks or pension providers, and yet we want to be in that center of people's mental model of their financial world. That's going to take some clever use of simple language to be successful. Yeah, so I think what what worked for us quite well is going actually out there to the people and presenting yourself as a person but also as a brand and going out and speaking to the people what their concerns are and trying them to to explain what you're actually doing and why it could be helpful for their for their personal benefit because this is where where they don't think about it this is where nobody else is and we went there um, for example at universities and we saw a huge demand by people um, because they get to know finally a brand a brand new brand basically um, in person which was what we saw worked quite uh, phenomenal I, th- I think that's something, you know, I'm very passionate about that in a digital world of digital services, the human, the meeting people face to face. I mean, if you had one of the first Monzo cards, you were given it by one of the founders or one of the people who worked there. You came to the office and there was a whole series of weekly gatherings where people would hear the speech. They'd understand what you're about. You build a, a real world sort of geographic center. You know, is do you think, Ed, I guess that that digital is this often this cold thing? Are you building building customers one at a time or is it a you know something you can do mass market? I think, you know, and if we look at those traditional aggregators and they're who they they seem to have a kind of a battle of who could have the worst advertising <laughs> campaign. And that feels that way anyway. But actually what it was about was being kind of front of mind. Something that was like almost a catchy enough song or a stupid enough phrase that you would kind of remember it. 
you know, just when when that had that one second of activation. That I you think we, can, we can't deny that Alexander Orlov is a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure, uh, sure, sure, sure. I could disagree. There's, there's an agency that's that's, that's earned <laughs> millions and millions of that. It won awards. When, when, the, when, yeah. when are the Ed and Jamie Teddies coming? That's what, <laughs> that's what we have. A lot, well, if you walk around Shoreditch, we have a lot of swag. Um, no, I, you know, I think I think you know. That you know, they were you know very good at marketing it, but you know, I I'd still stand by, you know, it is you know the when you're building a uh, something that is doesn't come with that you don't have that kind of budget, you have to actually find other ways to do it right, and and that could be from you know building small communities of developers and and inside people, inviting people into the office, and and then sort of collaborating. I think that that is the way a lot of Sort of small tech companies that have have got their start. Um, if you look at Facebook, you know, that's a typical example. It was a campus by campus approach. Um, you know, you can't really Stripe, go away straight away. Stripe famously yeah. signed people up, didn't they? They coded their first transactions. And um, for us, I mean, you know, we are very much still. I mean, we. If you look at what we we're still in beta, we call it. Um, you know, we're still bringing people in day to day. And, and actually sitting down, and it's slightly different, actually sitting them down and having conversations about their entire financial world and trying to kind of figure out the pain points and map their journeys and take kind of individual use cases. And if we can solve a cluster of use cases for uh, an individual, then, then you know, we could sort of let them be the champion there. Um, and then we can kind of collaborate with our partners and say, these are the kind of use cases we're finding. These are the products. These are people that are using products. This is what they find um, that they like, they don't like in conjunction with their full financial world. Um, that's kind of where we have a different angle because, you know, we have a slightly different angle on the market, I suppose. But I guess that leads to the, uh, you know, you mentioned Facebook. So they go to Harvard. You look at Loot who are aiming at students. You look at Revolut around the card I use while I travel. Is the modern route to the mass market finding a beachhead and expanding from that or is it that you do you think that fintechs can actually uh, go for the entire market in in one go so, so i think combining all of these uh, your, your question what was being said previously i think brand is is becoming increasingly important because if you if you look at us all in the room we have elements we're doing things that are overlapping right uh, and i think everyone in fintech is now starting to do things that are overlapping and I think also if, if you if you stand back and you also see the the, the world as a whole and how um, what's the what are like the company structures out there you'll because of the internet they're just like bigger and bigger companies right they're just a lot better at everything at a lot of things and, and they just dominate and, and I think you probably let's say have like less banks less less online sellers like Amazon exactly and so so that's that's what's happening and I think in, in a world where what, what fintechs do, I mean, TransferWise sends money abroad. It's a commodity product, right? So so there is usability, and I believe like that's how TransferWise got off the ground. I, I was an early employee there, and we had a much better product than, than some others. But the brand was like massive in, in, in terms of like, you know, when you're comparing two things that pretty much do the same thing, and then let's say everyone has the same cost base, then it really comes down to brand. And and, and I just think there'll be and, – and, the, and it's more important because there won't be that many players around, right? Uh, so, so you need to become massive, and I think you um, th that era of doing a niche thing very well is uh, in, in fintech is is you know it, it's it's harder to maintain now. Uh, so the question of should should fintech start with a beachhead or just go massive straight away? I think it's uh, if I if I had a bit of a nuance, should a startup fintech try and do everything all at once? Because if it, if you're doing you know an institution can do um, fintech innovation inside of itself, but for a startup fintech, it was small teams. And the, the array of problems that need to be solved and the complexity there uh, demands focus in order to be successful. 
you have to sample through many different iterations of solutions to kind of a set of problems from customer acquisition to how the technology works to how you're going to orchestrate a service around the product. That array of unpredictability and, and um, problems to be solved necessitates a focus that I think on the, implies in marketing a beachhead. Uh, but you need to be careful, I think, in how you do that. What is that market segment you're going to go into? What's going to be your approach to moving to adjacencies beyond that? To what extent will you need to revise the brand definition or the product scope and so on? So there are obviously questions to be asked uh, to, to expand beyond that beachhead. But um, the corollary to, to complexity is focus. And I don't think you get anywhere without having sufficient and a painful amount of focus. I think to, to add to add to that is is actually you know if you look at the time we're in now right so there's you know go back to PST two so if your data can be pulled from any device you know you don't have to be a customer of one bank to actually do your banking somewhere else um, you know who will control that attention layer there's you know um, IoT there is chatbots in the room um, you know there's voice you know Alexa uh, there's the big social media plays that have loads of loads and loads of attention you know who ultimately will win that game I mean currently everyone has a banking app on their phone um, so that's a you know who's probably winning that layer now but um, I think you know PSU2 will be super super interesting to see who, who wins that layer um, you know you know could see a lot of people in this room start to collaborate with Someone else that wins or someone in this room could win at the attention layer, but um, it will be sort of techn- technological um, in, the U- in Europe anyway, definitely led by regulation, which will be super, super interesting. But I guess that, that brings a question of, you know, we've got all of these fintechs, we've got overlapping players, we've got a lot of beachheads. Arguably, you could have 20 apps on your phone that all do a very small small part. We've seen that unbundling, the famous HSBC page where you've got the fintechs around the side with this is how it's all being you know disconnected. It's not made mass user base yet, but actually at the same time, we're getting this rebundling. You know, actually no one wants 20 apps and actually the, the entry point is difficult. So you've got, you know, Bird and Curve and Starling and Monzo and, you know, everyone in between starting to do this rebundling. Do you think that, that actually the adoption through into the mass market will, will be of these bundled services rather than the individual pieces uh, or vice versa? I think there are two competing forces. The, the force for a choice and value that specialization provides. Then the force for, uh, for simplicity and relevance that something that's kind of bundled um, provides. I, I think that the way things are now, with a, a, I just have a bank and a, a savings partner pension, I think that's too far in the direction of simplicity. I think the choice and value that specialization provides has some way to go. Uh, I actually think at Curve, we're trying to solve two problems. One is uh, discovery and the second is integration. At the moment where something is relevant to me, help me become aware of it and make that informed choice. And then having chosen to do something, make it easy for me to continue using. That's how we frame uh, pretty much everything that we look at in terms of the problem that we're trying to solve. I think those forces of choice and simplicity will drive some degree of aggregation, uh, some degree of collapse of certain businesses into features or other things. But I suspect the unbundling will just be a, an aspect of the modern world. Yeah, I, I don't think you need to uh, launch with a fully bundled uh, service uh, to win. And probably if you try, you'll fail because everything will be like sub suboptimal. But but I think probably yeah, so you need to so you need to be whatever you launch with and the subsequent services you launch I think have to be really good. Uh, but I think you'll definitely 
I, I think your chances of failure are increasing if you're staying down one vertical and doing that very well. So I think you need to be, it, it's almost like you can acquire users that let's say have a savings problem, right? And you're solving that savings problem very well, but very soon after that, you need to solve another problem. Otherwise you just start losing people. I think over time, people will be able to bundle things quite well. And you have to be uh, aware of that. I guess we're, we're seeing Revolut move beyond just the card yeah. into categorization, spending stuff. I guess we're seeing TransferWise say they want to bring out a spending card. I guess we are seeing some of already that, you know, people moving from a beachhead to try and land grab and, and move further across. Is, is there a case of that happening potentially too soon for some companies? I mean, PayPal, obviously, obviously PayPal came up with one of the great problem-solving things and they didn't have to branch out for quite a while, but... Are people not giving it the, the laser focus to really say, I really have cracked this problem? I'm not sure PayPal really, it's like Impesha, right? Like it was a victim of a success of circumstance in terms of where it was. You know, there was a, a very, very large marketplace happening going on that mm. preference them. You know, their, their ability to kind of expose APIs and actually be the API for payment was like a, that was a genius stroke in terms just, of what they just did. paying but, somebody without payment details yeah. you're never going to trust the banks are just like they're not going to trust you know paying someone by their email address kind of and thing and then they did yeah. and now they've got 250 million accounts and and I, I don't think it's a a negative thing to i think almost people have to your point it's i think we're beyond the beachhead now i think i think we're in this situation where for the earlier um companies in the mix they've they've kind of had a, a an element of success in a, in a space and actually with that success breeds opportunity um, and really you know, one of the things that I think you can kind of see sometimes with, with organizations is people not continuing the, you know, any any startup, you can do anything, right? And, you know, anybody who's in the room right now, as included, could decide to do something tomorrow and do it. Um, in a big organization, that's difficult. And I think the, the biggest thing that you can always retain on as a startup is that feeling of being able to sort of pivot and do something else. It's not what you're doing. It's not changing what you're doing now. It's doing more stuff. Yeah, I mean, we are focusing, for example, in the beginning um, on the recurring payments for our customers because we identified this as a pain point which is currently not being solved in the market. Um, utility bills, mobile phone bills, whatever you've got. So we, we take the, the focus piece uh, as quite important because we've got limited resources at this point in time. Um, but coming back to the rebundling perspective, isn't there a case to be made that imagine a situation where customers have, I don't know, um, one account where everything is bundled into it and so they can plug into it are we creating just another bank 2.0 where basically customers will not switch away again from these bits and pieces of services because they already got everything in their new yeah in their new card but as a consequence what happens if there's a better service for one of these features as you call them or small bits and pieces being created which will not be able to plug into this particular bank account or spending card or whatever you've got What's going to happen then for the consumers? Will, will there be less competition for these features? I think this this is where we get into the sort of conversations about sort of utility. And actually, you know, very similar to, um, you know, I could be with E or Vodafone or O2 or whoever type thing. Actually, the utility of a, of a mobile phone makes very, very little impact in terms of actually me using my iPhone. You know, actually the iPhone would work almost identically with any provider in terms of where, where you're at. And, and I kind of think that's one version of the world that we could kind of move to with with regards to banking where you have all of these pieces that are much more capable of actually owning and controlling the customer experience at the front and because they're better at doing it then naturally people move towards it i think the thing that that 
sort of misses out on is banks have a ridiculous amount of money. And, uh, you know, so the, the, the point where at the moment where, you know, you, you, we talked earlier on about um, switching, you know, switching is very, very low and, you know, adoption is good, but it's not great as in, you know, it's not crazy numbers yet in terms of where we're going. The minute that that really starts to change, I kind of wonder whether the billions that banks are plowing into IT transformation actually goes into something more interesting. But is it, is it going to be a judge of that switching, as in someone's physically used the account switching service to move to another bank, rather than all of a sudden their account data just says, Monzo, 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 Stalin, Stalin, Stalin. Wait a minute. We, we, this account's effectively gone dormant. They've not switched away. Uh, or, or they've plugged an API into Bud. It's... it's um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's all these great tools out there. There's no reason to switch one off. You know, you could have like 30 or 40 financial different products. But if you could seamlessly use the right one at the right time and it sort of was kind of send money to Dave and it actually knew that Dave was over there and um, I needed to use an FX tool. Um, but with a certain amount that actually that was the best tool to use, um, I, I don't have to unsign from TransferWise and all the other products. I could just use you know the the best rate of the best product now that isn't everyone's dream um so like you know everyone wants to be the the one you know the final one that everyone uses but you know in, in nature of any competitive market there's always going to be a cheaper better faster solution but allowing that competition to happen in in the consumer's benefit in one space is i think quite interesting um ultimately the ultimate marketplace is completely invisible right it's just invisible and it just assists you and it's alexa plus everything else I think that I think that's the thing. I don't think it comes back to transactions. I think the point where a bank realizes it's lost is not when a customer switches away. It's when the customer doesn't know who they bank with. Uh, and, I, and I think actually, if you look at PayPal, I genuinely don't know what my card is that powers PayPal. Uh, and I think that's where that bank has lost because actually I've got no relationship with them. You know, if we look at retail, that's definitely the case in terms of where we're going. If you spread out into commercial banking, it's even worse. Like, you know, we talk about zero being our, our business bank. You know, actually, it, also, business. it almost doesn't matter what's behind it because I, we get all of the benefit from somebody else providing all of the service. Um, yeah, so I think it's a, I think it's a difficult thing for the banks because like the the warning signs where you know unhappy people or you know angry people or you know people closing accounts and that type of stuff I think you know dormancy is probably the you know the slow bleed out of of banks you know and that's going to be really hard because at a very senior level it's going to be like well we've still got loads of customers they're not doing anything and that's the problem. Well, that's a fascinating conversation, I guess, in the interest of driving adoption to you guys. Um, why don't you tell us, I guess, starting with Charlie, about where people can find you in order to sign up for your service? You can find us at imaginecurve.com. Give us your phone number. We'll send you a text uh, with a link to the, the App Store or Google Play. Uh, and uh, that's the easiest way to, to find out more. Uh, install the app. Uh, the Curve Blue card is free, free to free to sign up uh, and you can be up and running in a, in a week from now with a curve card cool yeah for plum if you want to like start saving money uh, without really thinking about it all you have to do is go to like withplum.com or find us on facebook messenger searching for with plum and start chatting with us and you start saving money First of all, I want to say I'm a user of all the other fintechs in the room. So <laughs> love your services. Um, if you are interested in marketplace banking and you are either a bank or a fintech, um, then uh, find me at thisisbud.com. Uh, Drop us a message. Happy to speak to anyone. 
Great, Lucas. Brilliant. And for mobility, it's mobility.co, mobility with a double L. Uh, don't make that mistake. And we've got a special invitation code for all the 11FS uh, listeners. Um, it's 11FS. It's quite simple. Use it and you get the service for free. Perfect. Well, guys, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.